this quarter we're looking through the life of Peter. Peter is Jesus' best friend. Uh, in him we see, and this is the reason we're looking at it, is we see someone getting to know Jesus and beginning to follow Jesus. And he's really a model for faith for us. And that's why we're looking at him this quarter. Uh, we, two weeks ago, we looked at him meeting Jesus for the first time. Jesus gives him a nickname. Peter's actual name is Simon. Jesus gives him the nickname Peter. That's actually his nickname. We all refer to him by his nickname. Um, and in that, we see what Jesus has come to do in his life and in our lives. Last week, we looked at Jesus. Uh, he went fishing with Simon Peter. And, uh, and they began to see a little bit of the glory and the power of Jesus unveiled a little bit. Jesus performs a miracle in front of them, and they have this amazing catch. This week, we have maybe a bigger, broader episode of Jesus kind of revealing who he is and Peter figuring out what that means for him. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Father, we thank you for your servant, Peter, and we thank you that he is a lens through which we can begin to understand who you are. And I pray that we would place ourselves um, in his perspective in this. And as we do that, you would teach us about who you are and how you reveal yourself to us, dear God. We want to connect to something bigger than us. We hope that it's you. We need your Holy Spirit to convince that it is and how we connect to you, dear God. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Attend to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, this January, Elizabeth and I, well, Elizabeth's not here tonight, my wife, are going to have our 10th anniversary, which is kind of fun to reflect on. And uh, incidentally, I lost my wedding band two weeks ago. A week and a half ago. Yeah. So, almost made it 10 years. I'm thinking about going with the tattoo. Has anybody seen this? I have a friend. Seriously, I have a friend that got a tattoo. Barbed wire. Yeah, I think that would be, that would really capture what I'm going for. Like, covenant faithfulness. Barbed wire. Um, like it's a prison. No. That was a joke. Uh, when I met Elizabeth uh, a little over 10 years ago, I first met her and uh, actually in RUF. And at that point in time, I didn't know much about her. It's the way we meet most people. She was three things that I thought were awesome. 
And when I found out she was these three things, very quickly, even months before we started dating, I thought, that's the girl I want to marry. And those three things were she played the guitar, she played Ultimate Frisbee, and she was a sorority girl, a sorority girl from Ole Miss. And I'm down with those three things. Like, that's what I was looking for. I want a cute, guitar-playing, athletic sorority girl from Ole Miss. Um, and and, and I, married, I was attracted to her for those reasons. We've been married for 10 years. And this is what's happened over the last 10 years. You know what? I very rarely think about those three things. Um, I've seen, like we do in relationships, that there's much... There's much more richness to her. There's much more depth to her. Now the things I appreciate about her, I wouldn't have even known to be attracted to when I first met her. The way she cares for our daughters is the most attractive thing that she does. When she's up at 11 o'clock at night fixing lunches the next day, that's a thousand times cooler than the first time I met her when she was covering Gillian Welch songs on the guitar. It really is. It's beautiful. My point is simply this. Over 10 years, she's become a more dynamic person in my life. There's so much more to her. I'm still discovering things about her. And as I learn more and more about her, it changes me. And, 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 and it knits us. We're, we're married and we love each other, but it knits us even closer and closer together. And I simply say that to say that relationships are processes. And that's what Peter's in right here. And that's what we're encountering in Jesus as Peter encounters it in Jesus. Namely, that we're going to learn things about Jesus. And today, he's, there's, some, there's some big things that we talked a little bit about last week and we're going to explore more this week. Namely, that Jesus claims deity. And those words, when they come out of our mouth, sound trite, and, then, and, and maybe we affirm them really quickly. But the full import and depth and richness of what that means takes a whole lifetime for it to break into our lives. To kind of to, to agree to that and then really experience what that then means for us. If we really believe this first century Jew was divine, it's a whole life of process and struggling and growing into that reality. And that's not just the only thing that we learn, that we grow into our entire life. What's happening here in this over the course of this whole story of Simon Peter meeting Jesus is who Jesus is is being revealed to him more and more and more. And it's dawning on his mind and on his heart more and more and more who Jesus is and the implications for that. At this point, Jesus, Peter has actually left everything to follow Jesus. He's falling now, quit his job. So he's made serious commitments. But that doesn't entail perfect comprehension of everything that Jesus is. But it does result in a continual progression of understanding more and more the full implications of who Jesus is and what he's doing. So what that means for us tonight, if you're in here and you identify yourself as a Christian, it means that there's room and actually you should expect a life of processing and struggling. And that's okay. And if you think, in fact, for the Christians in the room, if you think, I've got this figured out, I have my, my, my doctrines and my life lined up in a row, I understand who Jesus is, what he's done, I can articulate it clearly and fully, I've kind of got it under control and taken care of and put together, then you're probably, at this point in time, in a much more immature place than the people in here who identify themselves as Christians and are struggling and are processing and still grasping and still growing in Christ. It's a very immature place to call yourself a Christian and kind of think, I've got this figured out and all stored and stacked up and understood and shoved away. If you're not Christian, if you're skeptical and you're here and you're 
you've been coming to RUF or you know people in RUF and, and you're wondering maybe where you are in that process, you may find yourself in this place that you're starting to experience a little bit. You've heard about Jesus and you're starting to experience a little bit of rest in your soul and in your heart because you've heard about Jesus and you're starting to think, I want that. And you're starting to think, God is God, yeah, and and I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness and I want Jesus to forgive me. I like what's being said in Scripture. And, and you're thinking through that, and there's this tiny, these tiny increments of rest that are just breaking in on you because you hear that and you want it. You know, Jesus is actually called our rest. What Sunday is, is Sunday is Jesus saying, I want you to relax because I am your rest. I actually want you to practice being in me by chilling out from your work for a while because I'm your rest. And so maybe if you're in here and you're, you're not sure where you are, but you're beginning to experience rest because you kind of want the gospel to be true. And maybe you're kind of further along than you think you are. And what I want to ask tonight for both of us, for everybody in the room, is what does the Christian life look like? What does following Jesus look like? And what we have in this passage is two things. We have Jesus, these kind of two aspects of following Jesus. It involves Jesus revealing himself to us and us following after him. Jesus revealing himself to us and us following after him. And the way you learn about following after him is by looking at where he reveals himself to us. So what does he reveal to us? And it's actually where he reveals himself that we begin to understand what it means to follow him. So the first thing is, what does Jesus reveal about himself? Jesus, this is the the point, and I'll prove it in a second, but I'll give you the major heading. Jesus is revealing his deity. This is a big claim. This is overwhelming. It's understandable that that's a struggle for anybody to believe. It's a struggle for Peter to believe. It's a struggle for everybody in the first century to believe. All through history to believe that this Jewish man that walked on the earth said, I am divine. I'm the son of God. But what happens in this text is three things, three ways that he's revealing his deity to Simon Peter and letting Simon Peter kind of struggle and grope along to kind of figure out what it means. The first thing is this. First of all, it occurs right on the heel of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He's taken a couple of fish sandwiches and literally multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. So something significant and powerful has happened that's unexplainable. Then he comes to this passage and it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat so that he could go up and pray. And we find out, it says, by the time... But by the, by, sorry, verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from land. The Greek word there for long way is actually a technical metric. It actually says many stadia. Stadia is 600 feet. What it's saying is it's multiples of that. And this passage is actually spoken about later in John 8. John recounts the passage. He actually says it's a couple of miles out. So Jesus, uh, excuse me, the boat is out a couple of miles. Jesus is on the shore. Uh, they're in a frustrating circumstance. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So here are the disciples, middle of the night, 3 a.m., between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., a couple of miles from shore, the waves are beating them, right? They're struggling. They're, they've literally rowed all night uh, fighting against the waves. And then they see somebody walking on the water. And they do what any of us do. They doubt it, right? That is the natural inclination for everybody. Scripture endorses that. They doubt it. 
And that's why they have to ask, who is this? What's going on right here? But when Jesus is walking on water, something's happening in this passage. We're getting echoes of the Old Testament. When this story goes out and people start talking about it all around the first century, all around ancient Near Eastern Palestine, people know and hear echoes. They hear about a man that walks on the water and they remember from the Old Testament that when God's spoken about, he's called the one who tramples upon the waves. That's what he's called in Job 9 through 8. In uh, Psalm 107, we're told that God is the God who speaks to the winds and speaks to the waves and calms them when his people cry out. Jesus is evoking all this imagery from the Old Testament. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's saying, do you see me walking on waves? Remember that time in the Old Testament when it says God is the one who walks upon the waves? He's doing things that God is described as doing in the Old Testament. He's Lord of the waves. So he does that. He walks on water, which is divine. And even from the Old Testament, they would have known this is something that God does. But not only that, when they're confused about what he is and they cry out and he says, they say it's a ghost and they cry out in fear, he says something interesting. Jesus spoke to him and he says, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid is a thing that Jesus has to say to people over and over again when they encounter him. Because when you encounter him as he really is, it's terrifying. But what's more interesting than that, because we kind of talked about that last week, is this phrase, it is I, because he doesn't say it in a typical way. Actually, what he says is, I, I am. It's ego and me. And if you've looked through the Old Testament before, God assigns a title to himself very early on in the Old Testament that he refers to himself as all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. In Exodus 3... Moses is being called by God to go into Israel, I mean, to go into Egypt and deliver the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, God, who do I tell them is sending me? And God says, tell them I am sends you. And from then on throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself the great I am or the I am that I am. What Jesus is doing right here is he's invoking that language again. He's invoking the language that any Jewish person would know what he's talking about. They say, who is this? They cried out, it's a ghost. And he says, take heart. I am that I am. He's claiming the name of God from the Old Testament. He's claiming his deity. So he tramples on the water. He walks on the water like the God of the Old Testament. He calls himself the I am, gives himself the title of the God of the Old Testament. Not only that, at the end of the passage, when everything settled down, Verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the Son of God. He does what God does in the Old Testament. He takes the titles that God takes in the Old Testament. Lastly, he receives worship. In the New Testament and other places, other people receive worship. Acts 10, Peter, people start to worship Peter because he's such a dynamic preacher and doing amazing things. And Peter goes, no, 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 you can't do this. I'm not worthy of worship. It happens to Paul. Paul preaches in the New Testament. People begin to worship Paul, thinking he's a Greek God. He says, no, 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 only God's worthy of worship. Jesus receives worship here and doesn't stop anybody. There are three different ways. He does what God says he does in the Old Testament. He takes on God's title in the Old Testament. He receives worship like God does. Jesus is revealing his deity. And this is huge. It might, it might sound like one of the boring facts about Christianity, but I actually think it's one of the hardest and most beautiful things to believe. Because 
one of the many uniquenesses of the Christian faith is that while God is most certainly God, that he's not distant. That he chose not to rule from on high, separate from his creation, but he came down and he lived among his creation. He endured what we endure. He was hungry. He lost friends. He worked. He watched people he cared about die. He was betrayed by friends. He even died himself. If nothing else, this, this truth can't stop shocking us. That we're saying, that Jesus is saying, God comes and lives in this world, and not with all of his glory. He actually veils his glory, and he chooses to suffer in this world. This is shocking. We can never get used to this. If we're used to this, and we don't understand what we're talking about. That Jesus, that deity, came and chose to live and suffer with his people. C.S. Lewis has a great analogy for what this would be like. If God is creator and we're his creation. And C.S. Lewis says in order to understand how creation can get to know its creator, we should think about literature. And he talks about Shakespeare and he asks the question, how could Hamlet ever know Shakespeare? You live in this world, you're aware that you didn't create this world, that there's something greater than you that created this world, but how could you ever know the thing or the person that created this world. And what C.S. Lewis said is if he wanted Hamlet, if, if Shakespeare wanted Hamlet to know him, okay, he's a fictional character, just to be clear. Y'all are all C.S. majors, so maybe you don't know Shakespeare. <laughs> um, Hamlet's one of his fictional characters. He wanted, if Shakespeare wanted Hamlet to know him, you know what he'd do? He would have written himself into the story. That's what Jesus says. It's God writing himself into the story. So that what he created can get to know him. And you see, one of the biggest questions we have, maybe without knowing it, is what is God like? And what God's doing right here is saying this. If you want to know what I'm like, you need to look at the person of Jesus. Because he's me. He's my son. And what happens is, and the reason we desperately need that, is because without God revealing himself to us, without him writing himself into the story of creation, we make up different gods that look like us and not like him. And we typically tend one of two ways. We either craft a God that loves us but never challenges us, or a, or a God that challenges us but never loves and accepts us. That, that's, those are the two ways we tend to go. This God, he loves us, but he doesn't challenge us. He doesn't stand up to us. Or this God... We can't stand because he challenges us and stands up to us all the time, but he doesn't, there's no love kind of that comes with that. So we craft this God. He loves us. He doesn't challenge us. And if God, if you find that the God you worship always agrees with you, that there are not times when his ethics and his story and his values, if there are not times when it pushes back against you, then you're just worshiping a projection of yourself. If people think that a reasonable objection to the existence of God is that Christianity, the God of the Scripture, offends different cultural sensibilities, that's an objection because he doesn't think the way our culture thinks. That's not an objection to Christianity. That's, that's proof of God's existence. What's a, what's a right and good objection to God's existence is if we found out that God can constantly changes according to cultural sensibilities. 
if God was constantly changing, adjusting his ethics and his values and his story according to cultural sensibilities, then we would know for sure, well, God doesn't exist. That's just a projection of each culture. It's not an objection that God exists to think that he disagrees with us. It's actually more proof than it is objection. So we create this God that he agrees with us all the time. That's not who God is. He does push back against us. He does push back on our sensibilities and our values and our ethics. And we should fully expect a God to do that. So, but sometimes we craft that God that always agrees with him and never pushes back. Or we craft a God that always pushes back but never loves us. Right? That way we can feel just in rejecting him. Maybe it's ethical, st- uh, ethical standards from Scripture that we don't like. We craft in our mind a God who majors on those issues and is defined by those issues, and we reject Him because He doesn't like us, and He doesn't like the way we are. And all He wants us to do is to change all the time. And we're not sure if we're, good on terms, or if we're on good terms with Him because He's always pushing back, and we're never sure. And we can't stand that God. But we've never encountered the full God. We've never understood the full context. That maybe the same God that we hate his sexual ethics on is also the same God. What if the God that we don't like his sexual ethics is also the same God that feeds the hungry and heals the sick? The same God who spends time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Until you marry those two ideas, you're not dealing with the God of the Bible. You're not allowed to say, I don't like this aspect, so I'm going to reject God, but I do like this aspect, so I'm going to embrace this God. He's both. They're tough to deal with, but you're not dealing with Him until you're dealing with both of them. This incredible kindness and compassion. And this law, and this holiness, and this design for creational flourishing. That's what the law is. And if you want to figure out how those two things come together, what's happening right here, and all throughout the New Testament, is God saying, Jesus God loves us enough to accept us. But he also loves us enough to not leave us where we are. So he's pushing on us, and he accepts us. And his acceptance comes first. And it's his love that drives his pushing. We craft a God in our image all the time. It's fashioned by misrepresentations in the culture and church, maybe even by our families. But what's happening here is Jesus is revealing his deity. He's saying... If you want to understand God, look at me. To learn what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is called in John the Word of God. In Colossians, the exact revelation, representation of God, the Son of God. To learn about God, we're supposed to look at Jesus. And this is what it means. When you see Jesus cry about death, you've learned about God. When you see Jesus wash the feet of his friends on his knees you've learned something about God when you see Jesus get to know prostitutes you've learned something about God when you see Jesus get really really angry angry with religious people who know their Bibles really really well but don't have compassion on broken people and sinners when you see Jesus get angry with them you've learned something about God when you see Jesus stand silent before false accusations and those accusations lead to his own death and he never says but and he never says defend, he never defends himself. When you see that happen, you've learned something about God. Jesus undoes all our faulty notions about God. 
Is he against things? Does he push back against us? Absolutely he does. He is. Love absolutely requires that you push back against people. Love is always against anything that destroys the object it loves. And sin and selfishness is the cancer that is eating creation from the inside out. And a God of love absolutely hates sin and selfishness. And that's good news. We need a God that hates what's destroying creation. In Jesus, we have the picture of the God of holiness and law wed with an understanding of God of grace and compassion and patience. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And you'll find that it's good news that he hates sin and wants to eradicate evil. And you'll find that he's even better news in learning about the way he intends to go about doing that. Namely, taking evil and sin and absorbing it in himself. He's revealing himself right here. Jesus is beginning. It's breaking in on Peter slowly. Will this whole quarter for us? Will our whole lives? Jesus is God. And the question then becomes, what then does following him look like? And Jesus begins to teach us about following him, what following him looks like by having us look where he reveals himself. Not just what he reveals himself to be, but where in Peter's life that it begins to dawn on Peter who Jesus is looks like to follow. And the place that Jesus begins, the place that Jesus begins to make sense to Peter is in a storm. You can, what's awesome about this passage, this is one of those small little details. In verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. The word there is a very strong word. It's actually compelled. It's not he asked them to or he told them to. It's a very, very pushy word. Every commentator I read on this talks about how that word is out of place because it's so pushy. What that means is Jesus knows what's about to happen. What it means is he's actually setting up the storm. He's putting Peter and the disciples in this boat in the middle of the night for the sake of experiencing the storm so that he can come to it. So they get out in the waves. It's pitch dark. They've been fighting the waves for hours. And here comes Jesus. They're not sure who he is at first. He says, it's me. I am the I am. Do not be afraid. And in some ways, you kind of can't tell if Peter is being like admirable or stupid at this point, right? He doesn't, and, and his request is very interesting. He doesn't just volunteer to jump out of the boat. His request is interesting. He says, Jesus, if it's you, call me. If it's you, call me yourself. I, I was thinking about this. Sometimes Peter's held up as like, it's this bold request, it's this bold leaping out of the boat because he trusts Jesus so, uh, so incredibly and, and that's the kind of faith we need to have. That's not the kind of faith he has. I immediately thought like, the way people have taught this passage, I'm from Alabama and in Alabama, famous words are, hold my beer, watch this. Have you ever heard this phrase? Hold my beer, watch this. There's no TH in it, it's just watch this. Watch this. Something like that. That's not what Peter's doing right here. He's not going like, guys, hold my beer, watch this. He's scared. And what his phrase, what he says is, if it's you, call me. It's fearful and hopeful at the same time. Because we're complex people, and we experience more than one emotion at once. What he wants to know is, he wants, is that Jesus, but I'm scared that it's Jesus. And I'm not bold enough to get out on this boat on, the, uh, on my own. Jesus, will you call me? 
It's not a great act of faith. It's a fearful and hopeful Jesus when you call me. You can pray that prayer. Jesus, will you call me? And if you pray that prayer, he will call you and he'll call you in ways and to things that are hard, that seem impossible, that are countercultural, and it will be sweet. And then then Peter's not just jumping over the edge of the boat. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, it's you who call me. And he steps out and he starts out walking. And he has his eyes on Jesus. And then notice what, what, what's the cause of his failure. He sees the wave and he sees the storms. And it makes sense. These are things people should be afraid of. He's not doing anything unreasonable right here. He gets afraid because he's walking on water in the middle of the sea. That's normal, rational, logical behavior. What would be odd in the way we wouldn't be able to relate to Peter is if he didn't do that, then he wouldn't be a character we could relate to. He gets afraid and he begins to sink because he sees the chaos around him. And this is, this is the point of the passage right here. This is, this is the center of this passage. How is Peter going to say He cries out, Jesus. And Peter doesn't reach to Jesus. Jesus reaches to Peter. Peter doesn't pull himself up. Jesus pulls Peter up. And Jesus Jesus does rebuke him. He actually gives him another nickname right here. He calls him, Oh, you of little faith. He literally says, Oh, you little faith. It's a nickname. Jesus actually gives Peter several nicknames. We'll encounter some more. But Jesus rebukes Peter after he saves him. Peter's entire contribution to getting saved is crying for help. Peter's entire contribution to getting saved is crying for help to Jesus. Where does Jesus reveal himself to us in the storms? Where is faith strengthened in the storms? in the hard parts of life. We are given a paradigm here for following Jesus, and this is the paradigm. This is beautiful. And this is God recognizing the complexity of the human experience and God having incredible patience and compassion. The paradigm for following Jesus is this, walking and doubting. Walking and doubting. Here's Peter. The most, along with Paul, the most central figure in Christianity after Jesus. What do we learn about him? You know he does? He follows Jesus and walks some and he doubts some. He's easily excitable and he's easily discouraged. In one minute he's fired up and in the next minute he's distracted and he's overwhelmed. In one minute he knows who Jesus is and in the next minute he barely remembers that Jesus is there. God knows who we are. He knows what we're like. Because that's us. Excited discouraged, wanting Jesus, forgetting about him. And the purpose of this passage is to see ourselves in Peter and then ask, what does God do with people like that? And he says this, cry to Jesus because you're not constant, but Jesus is. I'm not constant, but Jesus is. And that's good news because we're up and we're down. 
we're all over the place and we have a hard time admitting it. We hate admitting it because we're embarrassed by ourselves over this fact. We're frustrated by it. And we think the solution to this up and down nature of our lives is effort, is to do better and to be more focused on what we have to get done. And Jesus is saying, here's my solution. My solution is see that I don't waver. the chaos of our life is for us to look at him and say he doesn't even though we do what happens is in the course of our entire lives is that will slowly calm our hearts that will slowly settle us rest will break in our lives more and more every single day for the rest of our lives and the storms that take us up and down they'll still happen they just won't dominate us as much because when they go up and when they come down, we'll be confirmed and assured more and more that Jesus is stable, that Jesus is Lord of the storm. In this job that I have, I see the fluctuation in your life. You come and talk to me about it. I love it. I hope that we continue to talk about it. There's this up and down, and we're all taking this introspective audit of ourselves all the time about how we're doing whether it's spiritually, relationally, whatever it is, psychologically. And, and when we're examining our fervor about our religious activity and our, our moral selves and all that kind of stuff. And when I meet with y'all, y'all want from me what I want somebody to also give to me, which is a method to get this under control. Right? To normalize our lives. And everybody's frustrated at first, but eventually free by the fact that Jesus doesn't give us a method. He says this. These are his last words in the book of Matthew. This is what he has to say to you in the middle of your storms. Behold, I'm with you always. Behold, I'm with you always. In your moments of success, behold, I'm with you always. In your moments of failure, behold, I'm with you always. Those are his last words in the book of Matthew. What happens is, this is freedom, is you stop putting all your trust in your successes, and that's a good thing. Because your successes don't last. But also, stop falling apart with your failures. Because those things stop defining you as much more constancy. And faithfulness defines you and is your center more and more. And what will happen is this. You'll slowly stop being so fascinated and fixated on your own religious and moral commitment. Whether or not you're doing well at this point in time. And you become a little bit more fascinated and thinking about him. That's what happens to Peter. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. He doesn't will himself to have great faith. He never thinks about that. He just cries out in desperation, Jesus, save me. That's the paradigm of following Jesus. It's walking and doubting and finding out that Jesus doesn't change. It's doubting, storms, Trials, those are the key to maturing and saving faith. We think those are the things that we need to get out of and run from, that those are, those are God's judgment in our life, or they're the result of, or they're God displeased with us. Those are the places where faith has grown and matured. And this is what we're all trying to do. And, and here, y'all are better at it, we are better at it. 
than anybody else. And that is to manage the waves and the storms in life by sheer force of will. To impose our will on the unfavorable circumstances in our lives. You don't have control. I don't have control. Some of you have seen your parents try to impose control on you, on their family, on their circumstances by the sheer force of will. To control the outcome of life, to manage all the circumstances, and you know that it doesn't work. And their solution when it doesn't work is to will harder and push harder against the waves. And this is what happens when we think that's the solution to the chaos of life. Let's put our head down and get it done. This is what happens. We become angry, uncompassionate, controlling, impatient. All of us have looked at our storms and our circumstances and decided we're going to push back. And by the sheer force of will, we will not overcome. Score, relationships, family stuff. There are people in this room, there are plenty of us, who are still in the middle of the storm that abuse puts in your life. It could be physical illness, family brokenness, addiction. We're in a storm and we're staring down those circumstances and we're gritting our teeth and we're pushing back. You're at Stanford, you're alone, and you're afraid to connect to people. And you've said, this answer to this is I'm going to steal my mind and I'm going to get through this. And I'm going to control it all. And you're sinking. We're all sinking. And there are a lot of people here at Stanford that are sinking, and we're devoting a ton of energy to hiding that reality. And what's sad is that at the end of your college career, you're going to find out that a lot of people standing next to you, a lot of people who lived with you, a lot of people who are dear friends, they were sinking the whole time. And they never found a place where they could deal with that. Because we think the answer is determination. But here's what the answer is. The answer is the freedom of desperation. You're allowed to be desperate. There's freedom in there. Determination, safety. The freedom to cry out in desperation will save you. And that's where Jesus meets Peter. It's in us finally embracing our helplessness that we can't save ourselves. And we finally look outside of ourselves for a savior. You see, following Jesus growing and maturing faith doesn't mean that you grow to need him less and less it actually means that you grow to see you need him more and more that's what maturity is in the Christian faith not that you get to this point where you don't need Jesus anymore but you get to this point where you realize he's done so much more than you can imagine and you need him for so much more and he's so much richer and more beautiful to you at that point in time we need a savior for the storms here's the hard thing this is one of those annoying things older people say. And I'm just a couple years older. But y'all, this is the easiest part of your life. Right? This is terrifying. Y'all are all overwhelmed at Stanford. Okay, right now, you know what your responsibility is in life? Now I recognize you have a couple other ones. It's kind of you. College is a cakewalk. Y'all are about to enter a ton more. This is terrible. I'm just running everybody off. <laughs> old people, they're so self-righteous about being old. Dude, when you get married, when you have children, when you build a career, you start to latch on to yourself additional responsibilities. Right now, you're just taking care of yourself. When you latch on additional responsibilities, when you begin to care for other people and yourself to them and bind yourself to them, 
committed to taking care of them, you know what? You're losing more and more control and you're inviting more and more storms. When you build your family, Lord willing, you have significantly less control and significantly more storms than you do right now. This is easy. This is easy. What are you going to do in those moments? Are you going to exert your will and crush everybody and be angry? Or are you going to have the freedom to cry out in desperation, Jesus saved me. Jesus saved my family. Jesus saved my career. Jesus fixed this world. That's what happened to Peter. He's put forth as our model for faith. He's put forth our model for faith not because he's awesome, but because he's desperate. That's our model for faith. Are you willing to admit you're sinking? Are you willing to stop trying to impose your will on the storm in your life that you can't get under control and cry out to Jesus? See, Jesus is saying here to us, don't you see that you're sinking? Katie and Teddy and I are here not because we have advice for you on how to manage the waves and the storms in your life, because we don't have good advice on it. Because we can't manage the storms in our lives. So what we do here, what we try to do, is point you to the God of the storms. The one who tramples on the waves. The one who parts the sea. The one who calms the storms. The one who's not overcome by evil, but rather overcomes evil with good. Don't. Stand there by yourself and stare at the storm around you while you're sinking. You pass you to get this under control and right around the corner as soon as you are more devoted to managing your circumstances. Stop and cry out. And cry alongside the other people in this room for a Savior. Join us. This causes us actually to live this out together because we can't even do it on our own. What we need is sometimes we need other people to see the Savior when we can't. That small groups, Paul comes, all that kind of stuff, that's not programming for programming sake, and that's not necessarily the answer either. All we're trying to do is try to create avenues for you to connect with other people who can point you towards the Savior when you can't see Him, and other people that you can point towards the Savior when they can't see Him. That's what that stuff's there for. Because individually, by ourselves, we have such little faith, we have such, such little faith. But at the same time, it's kind of good news that that's all Jesus requires, isn't it? That's exactly who he saves. Peter the little faith. That's us. Let's pray.